feel like I hold your head up high till you find the bluebird of happiness. You will find greater peace of mind knowing there's a bluebird of happiness. Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I'm going to continue my read-through of Dick's 1962 Hugo Award-winning novel, The Man in the High Castle. This is episode three, so I urge you to go back and listen to the first two parts of this series. If, if, if you've had read this novel, or even if you haven't, either way, uh, go back and listen to those first two parts of of this series before jumping into the to this one now the man in the high castle is a really fascinating novel the plot is is really light even at the end of this episode we'll be halfway through this novel and it's still not entirely clear what is actually going to happen plot wise in the novel we actually are dealing with three or maybe even four sets of characters all doing very different things although they have interrelations and and they they meet from time to time but they're really doing dramatically different things and it seems that the only theme really connecting all these together is this question of what is real and this question of what is real manifests in various ways it's sometimes people sometimes spies sometimes people with jewish backgrounds trying to hide their jewish background because the Man in the High Castle is, of course, set in a world in which the Nazis and the Japanese won World War II, and many minorities were suffered genocide and, you know, had to fake their identities. Some cases, it's really just espionage and government shenanigans, particularly we start to see as we get towards the middle of the novel that that's a level that's going on in this world, especially between the Germans and the Japanese. But we also have a kind of a meta question of whether this world we that these characters are, are living in is the real world, right? And the biggest clue to that is we get a novel called The Grasshopper Lives, um, the Grasshopper Lives Heavy it, that many people have read, even though it's banned. It's, it seems to be read quite broadly across the society. And in this novel, we're painted a picture of a world in which the Allies win. The Second World War, although not how we remember from our own history classes how the Allies won the Second World War, so it's quite different. Um, we also have the whole question of fake and real antiques, and this is a bit closer to where the plot is in the early chapters of the novel. Much of the action of the first few chapters is really involving an uh, antique dealer who's trying to sell antiques to the Japanese because that's something they really like to do. They they're they're fascinated with old. Japanese, or the Japanese are fascinated by old American relics um, at, the, at the same time that Americans are fascinated with old Chinese texts like the I Ching, the Book of Changes, which they use for divination often. But back to the antiques. The Japanese are interested in American antiques, but there's a whole industry to produce fake antiques for this market. And there's a debate, a very important debate in chapter five, in which two characters discuss whether it really matters if anything is fake. What really, you know, what makes something real is a piece of paper that verifies its authenticity. But that has nothing to do really with the, what, what's called the historicity of an antique. The feeling in one's fingers or in one's eyes when they look at it that this is old. And so he's justifying his 
business of basically producing fakes in by saying, you know, that's not really what matters when it comes to an antique. So there's a lot of levels of fakeness going on in the story. And one of our main characters, Mr. Childen, who runs this antique store, realizes with horror that his Colt 44s, uh, which he's hoping to make a lot of money from, are all fake. So he calls his supplier, or he contacts his supplier, who, of course, got them from a manufacturer who makes fake fake guns. So this realization that the, that the world these characters are living in is not quite real happens at different levels, and both at the interpersonal where people put on false faces and facades and make false friendships. And at the level kind of meta where the question is, is the whole world maybe fake? And this is something that's solely re revealed to the characters and to the reader. In this sense, there's not really much of a plot for, for this. Instead, it's just characters kind of blindly going through this world and living their lives and realizing things about it bit by bit. So anyways, um, as for what happens in the first five chapters, I, I cover those in the earlier the earlier episodes. But again, there's not that much plot. In fact, I've already sort of established some of the main points. Um, there's one other character, I guess I didn't mention, a, a man named Mr. Togomi, Togami, a Japanese uh, basically a consular official in America running that, you know, part of the occupation of the western part of the United States. And he is meeting with this Swedish kind of diplomat, or he's kind of from the business interest, actually, because he, he wants the Japanese to establish a plastics industry. At least that's what we're told early in the novel. And then after they meet, he reveals that there's a kind of a secret. There's a man coming to help with the negotiations, a really old Japanese uh, business person. What is his real per position? What's his real role in America? That is not yet explained, but it's, it's, we can expect in this novel that pretty much everything we're told when we're first told something is not true. Um, I think there might be almost no case, or very few cases in which we're told the truth on, on first uh, mention of any almost anything in this novel. Everyone reveals layer, even layers of, of false identities and, and false realities. Baines, for instance, the Swedish um, ambassador, or the Swedish, he's not really ambassador, I think he's present, He's coming as like a business man. He reveals to a German soldier that he's actually deep down a Jew and he had his face reconstructed and his, you know, so he could pass as a, as a, as a, as a non-Jewish Swede. And then later on, I think we'll see in this part, there's hints that he may be actually be a German agent. He may not be a Swede or a Jew. So there's sometimes different layers of this falsehood. And that's, of course, something we need to think about when we have the world Dick presents, in which the Nazis and Japanese won World War II. And then we have the Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which presents a world in which the Allies won World War II, but not the world we live in. And then we have our own world in which the Allies won in a different way, right? I, I think in some of, I think it's in Dick's notes to some of his stories, he asked this question, you know, minus, if something isn't A, it doesn't mean it's B, right? It, it could be also not B. And there's, there's sometimes different layers. If, if you read The Dark Tower, right, you get this idea of the, the different levels of the tower. And reality unfolds in many different ways. It's not either or kind of situation. And, and that's what we are exposed to increasingly as we get to the middle part of, of this novel. So I'm just going to jump in and start talking about chapter six. And, I, and, and today I, I want to talk about chapters six, seven, and eight. They're actually kind of lengthy chapters, but since we've covered so much of 
of kind of the setting and where we're at. I think we can go through these a little bit quicker, uh, and that will take us about halfway through the novel, and then then I'll finish it up in upcoming episodes. So chapter six, the first half, um, and I think this chapter can no, this chapter is the first one to break a pattern that Dick had had up to this point, in which each chapter is set in two different places and deals with two different characters. This one actually deals with three different characters uh, in three different settings. But the first of these is Juliana Frank. Uh, we met her husband earlier, Frank Frank. He's very bitter about the Japanese occupation and losing the war. And he kind of lives this bitterness in his life. And he has a chip on his shoulder towards his boss. And he just lost his job. And he's kind of in a bad place. He, he, he lost his wife, too. His wife is in Colorado, Juliana. Juliana is her name. Where we last met her, she was basically flirting with with you know truck drivers and other people at a at a diner after work one day after work she went to a gym and then took a shower and then went to a diner and she ended up just flirting with people there chit-chatting talking about the war talking about politics whatever colorado is an interesting place because it's kind of in between it's in the japanese controlled territory but it's pretty much in the frontier so the japanese don't much care about it so it's a little bit freer of a space and that's that we suggest is one of the reasons Juliana's there. At the end of the chapter, last chapter we met her in, she she basically offered to give uh, an Italian, a young Italian man, I guess he's in his 30s, so he's not that young, but a, an Italian man, of course, uh, connection to the Axis right there. But she invites him over, or she, invite, she offers to give him a ride home, and we see them in chapter six in bed together, waking up the next day. So they obviously hooked up. Now, she, she's, it's just a general uh, conversation they have on various talk, talk topics, and it's fairly sprawling. I mean, and that's what this chapter is really about, is this conversation these two characters are having. Juliana thinks about what had the Germans have done to the world and, and their philosophy and their worldview, and she laments how they basically killed off all the good comedians. Dick writes... Maybe that's it, she thought as she put the magazine back on the rack. The Nazis have no sense of humor, so why should they want television? Anyway, they killed most of the really great comedians because most of them were Jewish. In fact, she realized they killed off most of the entertainment field. I wonder how Hope gets away with what he says. Of course, he has to broadcast from Canada, and it's a little freer up there. But Hope says really says things, like that joke about gearing. On and on. So he, she's, she thinks a lot about the world that the, Jap the Germans have created. And she laments that and she, you know, worries about this a lot. She, she, she actually, in some levels, follows German politics. The current head of the, of the Nazi regime is old and dying and sick. And there's a lot of talk about who's going to succeed him. And she actually has a favorite in who the success, successor will be, which is kind of up on it. But she, she thinks there's something rotten at the core of, of the Nazi system, uh, not surprisingly, because there was, but um, she thinks a lot of that. Like in the previous chapter, she thought about like how they kind of squandered the frontier. She talks about how the Nazis are spending all the sending all these ships into space, but really with no purpose, just for expansion for its own sake, without really conceiving of what the frontier could be or should be. So it's kind of blind ambition is driving much of the Nazi project. Um, of course, after she has some internal monologue, she talks to Joe and we realize that they had slept together. Joe is an Axis veteran. He's in his mid-30s and he has his own history about that. Although he's not really, he doesn't come off as a, as a Nazi uh, or as a really pro-Axis guy. He just happened to be Italian and had served in the war and now is, is living in America. 
He does though have resentment against the British because the British defeated his unit in a battle and killed a lot of his comrades. He managed to survive, so he actually thinks he wishes the Germans would commit genocide against the the British. But this seems to be not really a racially based statement or a, a kind of a nationalist one, but rather just one based on resentment about things that happened to him during the war. Juliana tries to diffuse this by saying, well, both sides did horrible things in the war. And it's at this point that Joe shows Juliana a copy, his copy of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Heavy, And this is, this. you know, we're going to find a lot of characters have read this book, have access to this book, have know about this book. So whatever censorship efforts there have been, they're not really that well. And we learn later on that the Germans are much better at censoring things than the Japanese. So, this, you know, and that's one reason the author of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is living in and like in the central United States, in the Japanese areas. His name is Abertson, by the way. I think that's finally revealed in this chapter. And he, he talks about the book and introduces it to Juliana. And, and what, what we learn is a little bit more about the history presented in The Grasshopper Lives Heavy. For instance, the Allies were able to get Italy to leave the war. And, you know, for this character, Joe, it's, you know, of course, he's Italian. He thinks about that. And he, he comments that Mussolini was kind of a fool and maybe that's not entirely unplausible. But what he thinks is unplausible is the, any possibility that the Allies could have defeated Rommel, who's almost uplifted to godlike status in, in the, the memory of, of these veterans like Joe and, and basically the memory of the world. Because he apparently, because the Nazis won the war, he was an undefeated and undefeatable general. Joe is, however, a little bit offended by the image of Italy and the grasshopper lies lies heavy. Juliana talks to him instead about the book that she likes to read and follow, and that's the book of divination, the I Ching. So both Juliana Frank and Frank Frank believe heavily in the I Ching, and she actually encourages Joe to perhaps use it. It's during their conversation this morning after their hookup that they learn that Borman, the head of the Reich, has died. And at this point, we they start to debate a little bit about, about Nazi rule. And Joe seems to see some aspects of, of Nazi rule that are kind of good. And he, he thinks that they have brought some things back. And, and, you know, he has good things to say about it. Anyways, I'll just read it. I've been living under the Nazis, Joe said. Sorry, I can't do the Italian accent. I know what it's like. It's... That, is that just talk to live 12, 13 years longer than that, almost 15 years? I got a work card from OT. I worked for the trade, the organization taught since 1947 in North Africa and the U.S. Listen, I've got the Italian genius for earthworks. OT gave me a high rating. I wasn't shoveling asphalt and mixing concrete for auto bombs. I was helping design, engineer. One day, Dr. Taut came by and expected what our work crew did, and he said to me, you got good hands. That's a big moment, Juliana. Dignity of labor. They're not talking only words. Before them, the Nazis, everyone looked down on manual jobs, myself too, aristocratic. The labor fund put an end to that, and I see my own hands for the first time. We all lived out there in the woods in the upper state of New York like brothers, sang songs, marched to work, spirit of the war, only rebuilding, not breaking down. These were the best days of all, rebuilding after the war. Fine, clean, long-lasting rows of public buildings, block by block, whole downtown New York and Baltimore. Now, of course, that works past. Big cartels like New Jersey, Krupp, and Schnonon running the show. But... That's not Nazis. That's just old European powerful. Worse you hear, Nazis like Rommel and Tot, a billion times better men than industrials like Krupp and bankers. All those Prussians ought to have been gassed. All those gentlemen of vest. 
Um, and Juliana sees a bit of a contradiction in what he says here because she sees that those people he thinks should be gassed are really the core of, of what the Nazi regime uh, was about. But I think it's interesting that Dick here talks about dignity of labor because that's something he actually seems to believe a lot in. And part of his anxiety about automation that we see in a lot of his other works, his praising of kind of the tinkerer and the crafter and the repairman, these are archetypes that Dick is really attracted to. And he kind of fits that ideology actually into the post-war German reconstruction project. But again, we need to be reminded that when the same housing developments were mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter five, go back to my comments on that in the previous episode, but I'll just tell you quick. What happened is a, a man says, you know, going out east, it's great. Like the Nazis are rebuilding everything and, you know, the east is booming and they have all these new construction projects. And a woman character points out that these are horrible places to live. And that's actually the second time we've had a woman comment on an aspect that men have praised about Nazi rule and then turn around and say, well, you don't really understand it. You got to look at it from a different point of view. Okay, then, then they talk a bit more about the grasshopper lies heavy and especially Abdinson. And he lives nearby where Juliana is in Colorado in the so-called High Castle. So he's the, the man in the High Castle that we're introduced to in the title of the book. He's actually in Cheyenne, actually. So he's in Wyoming. And we learned that he was once part of the American military. He was wounded in England when the fighting was there, when the Nazis conquered England. And he's hard to get to. He's kind of hiding out. Um, and Joe mentions that probably the Germans want to assassinate Abderson for writing this book. So it seems that Juliana and Joe seem to get along. They have a few differences of opinions, but they seem to be able to talk about it in pretty polite terms. And it's a, it's a pretty fruitful conversation they have. And, it, and, that's a, and this is just part of chapter six, and it's already like 13 pages, which is pretty long for a Philip Dick chapter. Um, now we switch to uh, Tagomi, who is dealing with the transition and the death of Borman from the Japanese point of view. And most of this chapter is a meeting in which a Japanese official gives reports on all the possible successors to, to um, Borman. Hitler is still alive, but he's like in a sanitarium. He's gone nuts from syphilis years ago. So, but before this, Tagomi gets a report on Baines. Now, Baines is a Swedish man. He's he was meeting and having negotiations with, and he learns that he was he's probably a German agent of some sort. Now, this puts uh, a scene we experienced later earlier with Tagomi and Baines in a different point of view. What happened was a Japanese who had been studying Swedish wanted to practice his Swedish on Baines, and he said some Swedish, and Baines didn't understand anything he was saying, and the Japanese immediately said, well, that's because his Japanese, his Swedish must be really bad, right? He's got a really high, heavy accent, so he can't understand it, right? But now that we get this report through Tagomi that Baines is probably a German, that might explain. We never actually see him speak Swedish. So maybe the Japanese are actually speaking very good Swedish, but Baines just didn't understand it because he actually doesn't know it, and he's faking that he's a Swede. Now, I don't know if that's the proper explanation of what happened, but it does put that earlier conversation in a new light. It maybe helps explain why there was that, that miscommunication. That we initially just said, you know, often when we first learn a new language, we speak it very poorly, and native speakers of, of that language don't understand it. Um, but possibly it's because his Swedish isn't that good either. So anyways, but Tagomi has to go to this report, uh, listen to this report, and 
get the news on Borman and, and he has to focus on the transition. And of course, this is going to have big consequences on the Japanese and their governance and the occupation of America and all, all, things are, all these things are going to go. And he starts to get these reports. And we learn that each of these possible successors has very different characteristics, diff even different policies. How hardcore Nazi they are varies quite a lot. Now, most of these people that are mentioned, the one, I, like at least three of these are historical figures. I'd have to look up the other two. I guess they're probably historical too. I, I know Dick read a lot about um, World War II and the Nazis. Maybe I should have just done my homework. Um, but the first is uh, Gearing. Gearing um, uh, of the Air Force, he was a pilot during World War One, and this is all matches history, at least up into the point where these people actually died. Uh, Gearing was a, was was executed. As a result, or he killed that he killed himself in prison, right? Uh, during the Nuremberg trials, um, and he's presented more as kind of a a cesarean figure, more of an empire builder, um, founder of the Gestapo, of course. Most self indulgent of all Nazis, Dick writes. Well, this is actually the the Japanese uh, report. Uh, then the other possible successor is Goebbels. Goebbels is, has been actually mentioned quite a lot in this novel through speeches that are, he's still giving speeches. He's presented highly educated, very capable, more of a manager than a more of a managerial type, um, but still very ideological. Quote, ideological orientation suggesting a medieval Jesuitic viewpoint exacerbated by post-romantic German nihilism, considered sole authentic intellectual in the parte. Well, he's the second option, and of of course, he killed himself in the final days of, of the Nazi regime. So, uh, next we have Reinhard Heyrid, he Heydrich. Now, he, you know, we got his description. Now, he in real life was one of the instigators of the Holocaust in Poland. In fact, the the operation that was finally implemented to murder all the Jews in gen the general government, which was the German-occupied part of Poland, was named after this guy, Operation Reinhardt. He was uh, assassinated, though, by Czech resistance before the Holocaust in Poland could be completed. So he died actually pretty early in the war in real life. And um, by the way, that Operation Reinhardt, that's, that's the operation connected to really the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto, and the death camps of Treblinka, Belzec, and Sobibor. And there's actually a really great book on, on that, this operation and how it was implemented. So those are the first three. Then we got um, Balder von Chirac. And I just looked him up. He was real. Um, he's the one that Juliana prefers. And Dick here has him as the head of the Hitler Youth. And I'm just checking the Wikipedia article. If he was part of it, yeah, he he did have a position in the Hitler Youth, so um, we should trust Dick on this World War II history. Um, so he's he's presented as actually a more of a humanitarian figure, actually pleading quote plea pled case directly to German people for remnant of Slavic populations to exist on reservations, like closed regions in the Heartland area. End quote. So he died in real life in 1974. Um, serving 20 years in prison. 
And the final candidate that we hear about is Arthur Sess Inquart, also a historical figure. So all five of these are, are historical figures. It's just two of them I, I didn't quite remember. And he's presented as the most, the closest to, to Hitler ideologically of these candidates. So these are the five. Oh, he, he by the way, in, in our world was, was executed as a result of the Nuremberg uh, trials. So Tagomi, while hearing this list, at one point has a nervous breakdown and he has to leave the room. And he leaves and he, he kind of calms down and then one of his assistants comes and talks to him and he, he, asks, he asks, like, what did I miss? And he says, well, after we talked about this, these candidates, we talked about the German economy. And here's a, kind of another example of, of kind of the reality and a lie uh, you know, the, the lie underneath a, a false reality. And that is the Japanese have strong indications that the German economy is incredibly weak. Um, now they're presenting this very boisterous economy, re, you know, draining the Mediterranean, turning it into cropland, going into space, rebuilding the eastern part of the United States. They have all these grand projects, but the reality is the German economy is very, very weak. And Tagomi hears this report. So that's what happens to Tagomi. So the focus of his part of, this, of chapter six is just this, the Japanese anxieties over who is going to succeed Bormann in, in Berlin as head of the Reich. And then we just get a very short couple pages about Frank Frink, who is beginning his business. He's very anxious about starting a new business and taking out a loan to start this business. He's worried about debt, but he consults the I Ching and he gets convinced that yes, he should start this new business and with McCarthy. Um, and his business, he wants to start, he was fired in the previous chapter. He wants to make jewelry and then sell it uh, and try to create a market for selling jewelry. Unfortunately, he, he doesn't think it will be successful because the Japanese are so into antiques. He doesn't think new jewelry will take off, but he's convinced by the I Ching and his reading of the I Ching to, to pursue that. So that's chapter six. Mostly the big kind of plot development here is the death of Bormann and the question over who's going to succeed him in as head of the Reich. Then we could jump to chapter seven. And the whole focus of this chapter is... In fact, this is, I think, the first chapter that's all set around one character and doesn't veer off into other settings. All the others are broken up. Chapter 7 is all about Childan, the antique dealer, and his the invitation he receives from this Japanese couple that previously had come to his store, and he really liked them, and he was fond of them. He actually has the hots for um, the woman in that couple, but he's really attracted to just how professional and modern they look. And he really thinks that's the future of his business and the future of America is going to be this younger generation of Japanese born after the war. He's very happy that he got invited to dinner to them. And so he's actually, the chapter starts out how anxious he is about like what he's going to wear, how he's going to present himself. And he's really focused on appearance and class. And we've seen evidence of this before. There was a scene where even, you know, he, he thinks about, should I carry my baggage up to this meeting? And he says, well, if there's a slave nearby, and slavery is legal in the United States at this point, if, if you know, I have to get, wait for a slave to take it up. I can't go up alone, even if it makes him going to be late. So he very much cares about his presentation and how he presents himself. And that's true here, too, when he's meeting this, this young couple. And they, they just have dinner conversation. They talk a bit about the Tao and this kind of Chinese philosophical concept. 
it's something that Childen sort of believes in, and he's confirmed by this. He gets his money back from his agent who bought the the fake Colt 44s. So he's kind of convinced that the Dow will kind of balance things out for him. Quote, what would it be like, he wondered, to really know the Tao? The Tao is that which lets the light, then the dark. Occasions the interplay of these two primal forces so that there's always renewal. It is which keeps it from wearing down. The universe will never be extinguished because just when the darkness seems to have smothered it all to be truly transcendent, the new seed of light are reborn in the very depths. This is the way. When the seed falls, it falls into the earth, the soil, and beneath, out of sight, it comes to light. Now, they also talk about the news of of the death of Borman and the succession. And this seems to be presented by this point as kind of the common conversation everyone's going to be having across America and perhaps across the world. Now, throughout this whole conversation, Childen is anxious. He's worried. He's kind of panicking about how he presents himself. And he, so it's a very anxious conversation from Childen's point of view. It's very nice and friendly from the Japanese, uh, young Japanese couple's point of view. Uh, then they keep, they find out that the Japanese have a copy of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, so this novel shows up again. And they talk about it, and Paul says, Paul is the, the, the Japanese man, his English name anyways, and he says that it's science fiction. So the question we might ask is, is this novel that Dick wrote science fiction? He's written a bunch of science fiction novels. In the early 60s, he wrote mainstream novels that didn't get published till later. But, you know, you might think, well, is this science fiction I'm reading here? It's, it's, an, it's alternate history science fiction. And they actually have this debate around the dinner table. Um, and here's what Paul says. It deals with an alternate present. Many well-known science fiction novels of that sort. Part of my insistence in this, but my wife knows and was for a long time a science fiction enthusiast. I began that hobby early in my life. I was nearly 12. It was during the early days of the war. So I don't know if that's Dick stepping in and saying, you know, this you should read this as science fiction. Um, but it, it seems that that might be what, what's going on. And then towards the end of this section during this dinner, dinner party, Paul shows Robert Childen a book called Miss Lonely Hearts. And it's, it's kind of weird because you have this Japanese young man, very well educated, giving kind of lessons to children about American culture. And this is an example of him doing that. So this is actually the second book he introduces to children in this chapter. And there's this even a moment where Paul is very kind of disappointed and frustrated that children didn't read the book because you get the sense that that the Japanese couple, they're Paul and, and Betty, his wife, are really kind of not too happy with the just the quality of the conversation that Childen is able to provide. And the whole time he's very anxious and, and nervous about presenting a good face and, and saying the right thing. And they, what, it, it's a nice, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pleasant enough dinner party, but you do get this tension here between kind of what they wanted out of Childen, what they thought they would get from Childen, an antique dealer who probably knows a lot about the past. And what they actually got was kind of this nervous, anxious guy who doesn't really offer much of value to the conversations. In fact, some of his most interesting points that Childen makes are made through internal monologue to himself, not expressed overtly to, to the other people at the party. And then towards the end of the, the section, Childen has a realization that the people he's talking to are, are fake, are automatons, are robots. They're not real people himself and themselves. And he starts to really doubt his own groveling, why he's groveling 
uh, Tuzi's Jap- Japanese all the time. He says, quote, former clarity, well, this is his internal monologue, former clarity that of only a moment ago had to be drawn on for all's worth. Full extent not glimpsed until now, Robert Childen did not feel quite as badly as before because the nonsensical dream had begun to lift from his mind. I showed up here with this such anticipation, he recalled, near adolescent romantic haze befuddling me as I ascended stairs. But reality cannot be ignored. We must grow up. And this is the straight dope right here. These people are not exactly human. They don the dress, but they like, they're like monkeys dolled up in the circus. They're clever and can learn, but that's all. Why do I cater to them? Due solely to their having one big flaw in my character revealed through this encounter. But such is, it, it, such is the way it goes. I have pathetic tendency to, well, shall we say, unerringly choose the easier of two evils. Like a cow catching sight of the trough, I gallop without premeditation. So then they, at this point, they just kind of finish the dinner and he, something we've already noticed about Childen, we realize that he's known about all his life, that he's basically a, a, a bootlicker and that doesn't seem likely to change, but he has doubts and he has anxieties about his own character. Now, later on, he has an encounter, Childen leaves the dinner party and then he has an encounter with a policeman who comes and talks about the man who had visited earlier. So what what happened in an earlier chapter was a man visited and offered to buy something like 20 Colt 44s from him for a, an insane amount of money. And Childen thought this was going to be a great sale. And he's going to, he was told he's going to buy it on behalf of a, of a Japanese admiral. Later on, after finding out the Colt 44s he had in were fake. In fact, this, the man told him right off the bat, these are fake. I can't buy them. He double-checked, and in fact, they were fake. He found out later on that this man, that there was, there was no admiral by this name, and the ship he said he was he, he served on had sunk during the war. So there was the kind of the police report on this encounter, and the policeman gives Childan his report, and the report is that the man who had come to his store was a man named Frank Frink, born Frank, Frank Fink, and, and born a Jew. And he, so he had this report, and this was a suspect on it. And the suspect, he was suspected that he was involved in some kind of racket. So, and then we know, of course, that it is Frank Fink, Frank that, that did this to, to discredit his boss. So the police report is correct. He decides, though, at this point to go by the grasshopper lies heavy. And he starts to think about gaps in the Nazi power. And he's not the first character to think about the weakness of Japanese power. Juliana thinks about it all the time. She thinks about it more intellectually. The Japanese see it and they think about it more perhaps economically in terms of, of policy. And now we have children thinking about the weakness or the facade of Japanese or of Nazi rule. Now he doesn't think that it's weak because the Americans are going to like overthrow the Nazis. He just thinks that the, the German system is weak compared to the Japanese system. So it, it ends up being a little bit more bootlicking at this point, but it does. It's another character who comes to the realization that the Nazis aren't as powerful as they're made out to be that everyone's having this realization at the time of a succession as is, I think not insignificant. So then we get to chapter eight, where we we meet a new character. Up to now, we've been kind of playing with this, basically three sets of four sets of characters: Childen, Tagomi, and Baines, Frank Fink, and his efforts to start a jewelry business, and then Juliana. Now we get a new character 
who is the council, the Nazi council in the East Coast, Hugo Ries, the Reichs Council in San Francisco. And so we're going to get for the first time, really, the direct German point of view. We met a German soldier before, but this is the first high ranking um, German perspective. And he gets a call from the local secret police chief, the chief of the secret police, uh, a man named Kreutz von Mir. And he asks for help about an agent who's kind of gone missing. Uh, we learned that there's like three or four of these agents, but the Kreutz von Mir says, no, it's the one who just came. It's the one who most recently came. So this, if, if Baines really is the a, a German national, then maybe he's the one they're talking about. Although I, I think we have direct confirmation here. Um, so we also learn about a Japanese uh, spy coming incognito. And this is, again, probably that man that Togomi mentioned earlier. The way, that, the way Togomi told it was he's an old man who's kind of fallen on bad times, living on a pension, who needs some extra money. And I give him this kind of work as a consultant kind of under the table from time to time. But the report that the Germans get suggests that this man actually is a fairly important figure, not just an old washed up business person. His name being General Tadeki. And Reese thinks, well, or no, it's, it's the, um, one of his staff members he's talking to thinks maybe he's just here for uh, like a medical treatment or something. And that's not entirely uncommon that, that Japanese high-ranking people come to, to America for, for this kind of medical treatment. So that's, that's kind of what he hears about. So he's basically hearing about two possible spies in one German and one Japanese active in his his part of the world so then he goes on to read the grasshopper lies heavy so this what is it the fourth character to show up with this book and he reads the section on the fall of Berlin and he's very captivated and taken by the writing that this author um, Abertson gives and he's kind of uh, you know, he thinks it's it's good writing and he's kind of taken in by the story he's reading specifically the passages on the fall of Berlin in this particular timeline presented by the author of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, Hitler is put on trial. So, of course, not that's not what happened in real life. And he's able, he, he thinks, now everyone, all the Nazis in this book think Goebbels is the greatest writer ever. And Reese actually compares The Grasshopper Lies Heavy and its writing to the writing of Goebbels. So that's, uh, I guess, to its credit. He deals with some consular matters, like some German soldiers, hang, you know, who got off their boat and needed to check in. And then he goes back to reading the grasshopper. Grasshopper lies heavy, heavy, and he gets offended that the book affected him so at a literary level and at an intellectual level. And he basically starts thinking through plans of how to assassinate this author. He realizes that it would cause too much trouble to assassinate him. Essentially, the the Japanese would interfere. It would be diplomatically too problematic to do that. And as chapter eight ends, Reese reads um, some of Goebbels' speeches. And that's pretty much the important stuff that happens in, in chapter, chapter eight. It's a shorter one. So the really important chapter, I think, in this section of the book is, is chapter six and chapter seven to a lesser degree. But these chapters are all about the grasshopper lies heavy and the German transition. And these are two kind of important points that are introduced to the text at the same time, introduced to the story at the same time.
At the same time, more and more characters are realizing the existence of this book and beginning to read it. The German government is in this crisis mode. And so I guess that's where I'll leave it. We're halfway through The Man in the High Castle, actually more than halfway through this novel. So there's still a lot to cover, and I'll, I'll do probably three more episodes on this on this story. Um, and concluding with, with some effort to try to to analyze it and to give some overall interpretation of this book. So as always, thank you so much for listening to my podcast on Philip K. Dick and supporting this. If you're interested in Philip Dick and you're just joining us, maybe because you're interested in The Man in the High Castle, I have a whole lot of other content about Philip Dick in previous episodes. So if you want to do a read-through or read along with me, I have um, over 100 episodes prior to this on the works of Philip Dick including all the stories written up to this point and is not early novels. So go back and listen to those. You can subscribe to my series and, and I'll be continuing to upload content until I get through all of the works of, of Philip K. Dick. So again, thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with my part four of my comments on The Man in the Night Castle. You must you find the And contentment forever If you